We are excited to be here. Uh, we are, this is going to be called the Five Genres Panel, or, or Multi-Genres Panel. I, I think we have more than five genres represented up here. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm Norm Thoming, also known as August Norman. I write uh, crime thrill, modern crime thrillers and mysteries, and that's who I am. I've started attending this, uh, this conference in 2011, so I'm one of the local success stories. Uh, and I'm very psyched uh, to interview, I'm psyched, bro. Uh, I'm very excited and uh, honored to be asked to host this panel, um, which might just be a ragtag of all kinds of stuff. Um, but these authors up here all have deep ties to this, uh, to this conference, as well as some exciting publication stories and all kinds of amazing work. So without further ado, allow me to introduce these five authors. Seated right here to my left, your right, is Marianne, wow, Marianne Doherty. Sorry, Marianne. She's an award-winning writer and beauty editor who has appeared on Live in LA, Lifetime's New Attitudes, and Weekend Today. In 2001, HarperCollins published Asian Beauty, which she wrote for celebrity makeup artist Margaret Kimura. Her freelance work has appeared in both trade and consumer magazines, and in 2018, and again in 2022, she was a finalist for the Golden Quill Award for Journalistic Excellence. She resides in Santa Barbara, California, where she's on the faculty for the Santa Barbara Writers' Conference, and she is here now with her first novel, What We Remember. Barnaby Conrad III is the author of 10 books, including Absinthe, History in a Bottle, Ghost Hunting in Montana, The Martini, Les Chiens de Paris, Les Chats de Paris, and Pan Am, An Aviation Legend. He has written monographs on American artist Richard, oh man, Richard Diebenkorn, yes, John Register, and Mark Stock. A graduate of Yale, he's served as senior editor of Art World in New York, senior editor of Horizon, and editor-at-large for Forbes, Forbes Life. He's also been a special correspondent in Paris for the San Francisco Chronicle. Today, he lives between San Francisco and his farm in Virginia. His latest is Jacques Villiglay and the Streets of Paris, a large format, there it is, monograph of 260 pages with over 185 images of Villiglay's art and 170 photographs. It's the first English language biography of Jacques Villiglay, one of France's greatest contemporary artists who died only last year at the age of 96. Barnaby Conrad III. Jim McCutcheon is a fifth generation New Orleanian a current resident of Corpus Christi, Texas, an accomplished and retired urologist, a father of eight, including Santa Barbara's own Becky Burkus, a grandfather of 16 and great-grandfather of seven. Despite all of these accomplishments, Jim then went on to publish both a memoir, Blessed, and his first novel, To Free a Slave, The Moral Dilemma of Slavery, at the tender age of 92. Jim McCutcheon, everyone. Diana Rabb is a memoirist, a poet, an essayist, a blogger, and a speaker. She has a PhD in psychology with a concentration in transpersonal psychology with a research focus on the healing and transformative powers of memoir writing. Her educational background also includes health administration, nursing, and creative writing, but she's an award-winning author of 10 books, over 1,000 articles, poems, and the editor of two anthologies. Here at the SBC, SBWC, she teaches memoir and is called the Queen of Journaling and or Queen of Bliss. Her latest book of poems is An Imaginary Affair, Poems Whispered to Pablo Neruda, and her book Writing for Bliss, as well as the Writing for Bliss journal, are both memoir and how-to guides for anyone who wants to connect with and nurture their soul through the act of writing. Hey. Diana Wren. <laughs> and then there's Max. Max Talley, sometimes known as Mac to those around this room, was born in New York City and lives in Santa Barbara. He's been a professional musician and an artist. His writing has appeared in Volume 1, Brooklyn, Atticus Review, Bridge 8, the Santa Fe Literary Review, Litro, and the Saturday Evening Post. He won the 2021 Best Fiction Contest in Jerry Jazz Musician for Celestial Vagabonds, later nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Tally's first novel, Yesterday We Forget Tomorrow, debuted in 2014, and his next short story collection, When the Night Breathes Electric, will be published this year in the fall. His latest work, My Secret Place, is a collection of short stories that describes musicians and artists, underdogs and eccentrics, secret heroes of their own lives. 
all of them trying to live in and make sense of a modern world that may have already left them behind. Max Talley. And obviously, if, if you don't know already, three of these people are teaching workshops uh, throughout the week. So please find them. We have Max teaches short stories and how to place them. Diane is teaching memoir and uh, other things, as well as Barney Conrad the third is uh, how your story starts. And I won't lie, the first workshop I went to at this uh, conference was Barnaby's uh, workshop um, back in 2011. So it's a fun full circle for me. That is where we are. So now I'm just going to go down the line and have them actually sum up their latest project. Uh, Marianne, would you like to begin? Testing. I don't. He said you have to really. Okay. Wow. All right. Yes, I'm ready. I think you're doing great. Okay. <laughs> Tell us about what we remember. What it's about. Yeah. How it got here. Okay. This, Pitch it. This book is about four women who become friends when they're young and young wives and mothers. Some of them have some tragedies befall them, and for one reason or another, they all separate. They go their separate ways, and then years later, one of them finds out she is diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and she asks her daughter to find the other ones. She wants to have a reunion, and they all get together at Cape May, New Jersey, where they find out, realize that their friendship was what sustained them, and they were their best selves when they were together. So it's really a novel about female friendships helping you through the ups and downs of life. Would you say the genre is upmarket women's yes. literary fiction? It's definitely, that's what it is. And as Monty told me, this is not a book for men. And I said, well, three men have read it and they liked it. So there we go. So anyway. Yes, okay. I've read it too. And men, men do like it. It's great. All right, Barnaby, would you tell us about Jacques Villiglay? Yes. Um, by an odd coincidence, Jacques Villiglay was born on the same day as my father in March 27th. 1926. Dad was born in 1922, but it was just a peculiar coincidence. Um, I met Jacques about 20 years ago when he showed in San Francisco. He, um, he started making art in, he was born in 1926. He, from Brittany, went to Paris, um, tried to make abstract paintings in 1949. Um, he was trained as an architect. He was looking around at Abstract Expressionism was, you know, in full play in America. And he, um, he just said, I, I don't think I can paint abstract pictures anymore. Um, so one day he and a friend were walking down um, a street in Paris, Boulevard Montparnasse, and it was right near La Coupole, if anybody knows that restaurant, been around since the 20s. And there was a huge billboard there, and it was plastered with had um, been habitually past, plastered and plastered over with posters. And um, he looked at, they'd all been torn by sort of, you know, ragamuffins and um, street kids and stuff. And um, he said, wow, it kind of looks like an abstract painting. And he and Raymond Haynes, his buddy in a crime, said, let's just take it down, let's steal it. And so they tore it off in eight pieces and kind of rolled it up and furtively and ran back to their apartment. And they, um, they threw it in the corner and then went off and did bohemian things for two weeks. And then finally go, hey, you know, let's take a look at this thing. So they put it back together, glued it together, and said, this is a painting. This is an abstract painting. And they, um, that painting today is in the collection of the Centre Georges Pompidou Center in Paris, the Museum of Modern Art, basically. And um, he went on to take 4,000 more posters like this. And he, um, he and um, colleagues like uh, Yves Klein, um, Jean Tanguely, the great Swiss sculptor who worked with junk, basically, and, and, glue, and uh, soldered it together, um, and uh, Cesar, um, and a number of other artists, uh, Nicky de Saint-Fal, uh, started the Nouveau Realists, the New Realists, and they used real materials. So there were no books written in English on him, so I decided I would write the first book in English on him. And, and, and what genre would do we call that? Well, it's really a sort of art historical biography. All right. And um, 
I had full agile. I speak French. I'd lived in Paris in the 80s. And, um, and he became almost like a kind of French uncle to me. And I know his da three daughters very well. And, and we, we just walked around Paris. And it was like, it was unbelievable. He, he'd go, oh, yeah, this is where Picasso ran by me. And I said, hello, Picasso. And, and, uh, and he kept running. And uh, so, and, you know, he just knew he'd met or seen everyone. And he was, he died re just recently, uh, last year. And um, anyway, wonderful guy and just, I mean, a, a treasure trove of um, gossip also about, you know, all the artists. Oh, he was, he was like completely full of crap, that kind of thing. So it's, it was a fun book to do, a serious book, but um, he made it fun. And so we, I miss him, but we have the book. So turning it over. Fantastic. Jim, will you tell us about your work? My book is a what-if book. Uh, when I was a small child, it came to my attention that my family had once been rich and had owned a big plantation on the Mississippi River, and I thought, what if I inherited that? And I thought, that would be wonderful. I'd be rich. As I got a little older, I realized there'd be slaves on that plantation, and my well-formed Catholic conscience would not allow me to own slaves. But what if I inherited it? What would I do? And so the story is about two boys. One is the son of plantation owners, and the other is the son of Henry and Vivian, who are the chief um, foreman, chief foreman and chief domestic in the big house. And um, they were born on the same day, April 12, 1818. Ben was the white boy. His mother contracted childbirth fever and was delirious and having spiking chills and fever for a whole week or eight days. She nearly died, and she was without milk, of course. And so Vivian... Abel's mother, took him in the big house, and she moved into the big house and nursed both of the babies and raised them like twins. They bonded like twins. Henry, Abel's father, and Robert, Ben's father, both wanted them separated, especially Henry. He said, I want my son in my cabin and my wife in my bed. Eventually, they worked out a compromise that Abel would be able to stay in the big house where his mother was a domestic so she could look after him while his dad was out in the fields. The boys stayed friends for the rest of their lives, and they didn't talk about slavery. It was the only thing they didn't talk about. It was too sensitive, and Ben was afraid that Abel would have his feelings hurt. But when Ben's dad dropped dead when the boys were 22, and his mother moved to the city to take care of her business interests there, Ben became master, and Abel became overseer. And Ben finally talked to Abel about slavery, and he said, what are we going to do with our slaves? And Abel said, our slaves? I don't have any slaves. I am a slave. And he said, I know you're a slave, but you have a mind. Use it. Okay. I can think like a slave because I am a slave. What I want is to be free. Okay, how am I going to do that? It's against the law. It's against economics. And if I tried it, there are lots of people who would want me dead. Abel was very bright. He suggested a plan that if it was legal, could free not only him, but all the slaves. Well, eventually, very frightened, Ben tried it. And we'll what have to read it to find out. We'll have to read it. To, don't tell the whole thing, Jim. What? Don't tell the whole thing. Save, save, some for the, save, some, save some for the people who buy the book. Save some for the people who buy the book, don't sir. Oh, no, I was going to stop. <laughs> what happened is a series of both expected and unexpected consequences, and those expected and unexpected consequences 
will give a thoughtful reader a great deal to think about. Indeed. So we'll call this genre historical fiction. Diana. Hello. Uh, so um, this is a five genre panel, and I brought three genres, and my panelists helped me with the two others because I've only written in three genres. <laughs> uh, anyway, my latest book is an imaginary fair poems dedicated to Pablo Neruda because I've always loved uh, the poetry of Pablo Neruda. Uh, it resonated with me. I loved his odes, and I loved his uh, love poems. And uh, he, like many poets, he had a very tragic childhood. Uh, maybe many writers, I don't know at this point, but we used to... Um, and so um, he, his mother died in, uh, pretty much quickly after he was born, and his father remarried, and uh, he was never uh, instructed or admired or respected for his poetry. When his father remarried, he, um, uh, he she's continued to write poetry, but he uh, ended up changing his name when he published his first book at 20, because his father did, was not proud of the fact that he was a poet. So uh, all the poems in this collection are responses to his poetry. So here at the conference, I teach memoir writing, and uh, my book, Writing for Bliss, is really the basis of my course, and there's a journal that comes along with it. Uh, thank you. And <laughs> very carefully set up. And... <laughs> And it was actually the basis of my uh, PhD dissertation, which was writing for healing and transformation. Uh, I started writing at a very early age, probably when I was six and sent to sleepaway camp. But more importantly, when I turned 10, and many of you know the story, my grandmother um, took her life uh, and I found her. And that's the basis of my first memoir, Regina's Closet. And when I found her, uh, it was very it wasn't really traumatic for me as a 10-year-old, but you know, I think as we get older, uh, we look back on our childhoods, which is what memoir is about, and we realize that, oh wow, I can't believe I survived that. So it took me 40 years to write that book, 40 years after her passing. And about that time, I, um, my parents had moved from my childhood home, and we found her journal being orphaned in World War I. And that was very revealing about her life and how trauma can really live with us for our whole lives. And writing heals, so I'm out always advocating that writing heals, whether you write poetry, fiction, or nonfiction. I, I've always been a nonfiction writer. Uh, as a child, I would go to the library and go to the memoir and biography section. Uh, and uh, some friends of mine who are fiction writers say, I don't know how you do it. You, I, you know, they like hiding behind the mask of fiction. And I wish I could hide behind the mask of fiction. I'm kind of jealous of fiction writers a little bit. Um, and so maybe that'll be my next project. So thank you for coming. Um, I'm hiding behind the mask of fiction. <laughs> Um, my Secret Place was a collection of um, short stories that had been published in literary journals. So when I collected it together, then I had to think, is there some connection to this? And I realized all the stories were about outsiders, eccentrics, people kind of on the periphery of existence, maybe even the periphery of what we see every day, people we look at and they pass us by. And I wanted to dive deeper into them and try to figure them out. Um, I'd been a musician in New York in the 90s, so I wrote a story about a 70s one-hit wonder band that gets together and writes a hit song. They have a roller coaster ride to success and then to total destruction. Um, and I also wrote, uh, I've done some painting and I knew about the New York art scene, so I wrote about a woman, and this is familiar, familiar with Picasso um, and his, one of his wives dying recently. Um, that uh, this female artist lives in the shadow of her much more successful husband. So the husband dies and suddenly she has her chance to bloom, but does she bloom? And so that was a question because it takes place in 1990, right when the New York City art market crashed. So her husband died at, with really good timing. Um, <laughs> and... and um, one of my favorite stories was one where it was midnight and I was watching a movie and getting ready to go to sleep. I live on a busy street in Santa Barbara near a bus stop 
and suddenly there was a guy outside my window listening to a transistor radio and smoking a cigarette and the smoke was coming in my window and I was hearing the radio and I was so annoyed. My, my lizard brain, reptile brain was so annoyed. I was like, can I tell him to shut up? Can I make a noise complaint? But instead I calmed down and I thought, what, what is this guy's life like? And I, I wrote uh, Transistor Man, which was about a day in the life of a guy who walks around listening to Transistor, collecting batteries, collecting cassettes because he believes and, you know, this isn't the most far-fetched conspiracy theory that someday the grid will go down and there'll be no radio stations, there'll be no music. He wants to be prepared. So, <laughs> so um, a lot of these characters, I didn't agree with their uh, choices necessarily, but I, I think all of our choices in life are eccentric and so it's sort of like what angle you look at them from. But the main thing was to show them what their flaws, but with some empathy so that people could see that, you know, they're the secret heroes of their own life. I think we all are the heroes of our own existence, and I wanted to follow these people. And uh, so that, that was basically it, and uh, I think I've talked enough. Oh, you think so? Well, of course, since this is a conference and a lot of people are trying to think, get things published, we probably should talk about um, your path to publication. So um, starting back with you, Max, uh, would you talk, tell us about the timeline from your original inspiration and then the submittal to publication and, and how, it, how so, it came to book form? These stories range from 2018 to 2021. When I'm not writing a novel, I try to write a short story a month. So uh, I'm not saying every story is good, but I, uh, in four years I can compile enough so that there's uh, good stuff to pick out from. Um, it's, I think it's easier to compile a collection than writing a novel, personally for me, because you finish a story, you do it in a month, you move on, you do another story, there's a sense of closure. With a novel you can be wandering in the desert for years on a horse with no name and uh, um, or even a few years, I mean, so um, I submitted this around to various small publishers. I probably had got 10 rejections. And then in August 2021, Main Street Rag out of Northern California accepted it. Um, the editor told me it would probably not be released until the fall of 2023. So I panicked. I was like, two years, I can't wait that long. <laughs> so I turned in all my stuff early. I did the cover art. I, I, you know, I went crazy aggro and got them everything. So it was published in September of 2022. Um, and that's the, that's the basic story. All right, Diana. It's your journey. I've had three different journeys. My first uh, book, uh, Regina's Closet, I sent out, I don't know, 50 query letters, 100, I can't even remember. But then I heard that War and Peace was rejected 15 times, so I felt better. <laughs> so finally, it was accepted for publication, and I think it came out within a year. This was back in 2007, so it came out within 18 months of uh, the acceptance. Writing for Bliss, uh, I was teaching at UCLA Extension in the writing program, and by the way, it's really good to talk to people because I was talking to someone else teaching there and she said, oh, you got to try this publisher. And so I queried them and they loved the idea. So sometimes you get lucky, but communicating and networking is really important. Um, the poetry book, poetry, this is was published by Finishing Line Press, which is a small poetry publisher, but they do just do poetry. I submitted it uh, in the middle of the pandemic. Um, when was that? I guess um, September 2020, and it came out in July 2022. So I think depending on whether it's a big publisher, small publisher, the timeline is always different. But uh, all I can say is just be persistent and believe in your work, because if you don't believe in it, then you know publishers won't. So thank you. Well, I started when I was 84, published it when I was 92. It only took a little time. <laughs> I had a friend who was an author, and I told him one time, you know, when I retire, I'm going to write a book. And he says, that's a real coincidence. I've been thinking when I retire, I'm going to take out a kidney for cancer. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, <laughs> uh, 
I invited Jerry and Judy over to my house, gave them some munchies and some good red wine, and I said, Gerald, here's a story. And he said, it's a great story. I said, yes, I want you to write it. And he said, no, it's your story, you write it. I don't know how. Do what I did, study. Well, I had a choice of going to Iowa City, living in a dormitory and eating in a cafeteria, or coming to Santa Barbara, living at my daughter's guest house, and eating at her table with Becky and her husband, Jeff, who was sitting right there. So eventually, after four years of study at this place here, I tried it. The story is beautiful. The writing, you have to be the judge. <laughs> my wife painted the picture, and it hangs above my fireplace. Becky put it on her book, put a picture of the plantation house on the back as it is now, and I sent a copy of the book to Grace, and she said, it's beautiful. I said, the outside or the inside? <laughs> she said, the outside, of course. <laughs> yeah, pardon me, Fiona. Grab that one. He has one over there. Yeah, yeah, right. it's, it's a really great cover, actually. My dad was a portrait painter, and uh, I grew up painting, and that's what I thought I was going to be, um, a painter. And then I went to New York and realized that I needed a job to pay my rent. So I became an art critic. And, and um, actually an art journalist that was a little more, I didn't want to criticize anybody, I wanted to write about them. And um, so I met all kinds of, I met de Kooning, I met uh, Romare Bearden, I had lunch with him. Uh, I knew a lot, all the dealers in New York City. Um, eventually I, I came to became pretty good friends with actually Richard Diebenkorn of Los Angeles. Um, and uh, written about him, I, I did a monograph on him many years later. Um, but um, so my first love was was painting and but writing as well. And I had I studied with Gordon Lish, fiction editor of Esquire, at at Yale. And um, he um, he was a taskmaster. He was really tough. But he said, if any of you guys write, gals, if you write anything good, I'll publish you in Esquire. So I mean, he was treating us like, you know, a potential pros. And one, one guy in the class became a, a, a pretty good agent, actually. Uh, another guy became, became a journalist. I became a journalist. And I actually only sold my first short story about a, two years ago, I guess, to um, something called theghoststory.com which is actually um, pretty good. They have some pretty good stories. Um, but meanwhile, um, my first real book was called Absinthe History in a Bottle. And while I was in New York and I decided to take some time off and I spent six months in the New York Public Library, I just went every single day. And this was, of course, way before uh, you could Google something for because I would, I would go in and I'd get a stack of books about 19th century France and I'd sit there and I'd just speed read like this, looking for the word absinthe, 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 come on, come on, come on, absinthe. And, and I wrote all these things, assembled them into, into a, a manuscript of maybe 60 or 80 pages, and I gathered paintings by Manet, Degas, Toulouse of Trek, Van Gogh, etc. cetera. And, um, and I had my dad, I could ride in on my dad's coattails with Don Congdon, was a famous agent, he was Styron's agent, <clears throat> Ray Bradbury's agent, and he also used to come out here to the conference. And he, um, first I told him about it on the phone, and he goes, I don't like the idea. And so I said, let me send it to you. And he goes, he called back about three days later and said, I like the idea. <laughs> and so he sent it out uh, eight times to some top editors and got some very nice all turned downs and I was, I was pretty depressed by that. And instead of just giving up, I said, 
well, I guess I'd better move to Paris. And um, I had a great aunt who had died and her apartment was empty and her daughter said, why don't you just go there? You'd be doing me a favor. And um, by the way, you will have to walk the dog, you know? And um, so I went over there and I started, I, I did other things, a lot of travel writing and skiing and um, all, every magazine you can imagine from the Smithsonian. Most of them are out of business now. But um, travel and leisure, blah, 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 European travel and life. And, um, and then uh, I came back to San Francisco and I realized I was a bit older and I just rewrote the book, gathered all the pictures, gave it to a friend at Chronicle Books and he said, Let's, we'll print it. And we got it, it came out six months later and New York Times gave it a big review and um, and then actually they reviewed it again a couple, about six months later in a short review. And we sold um, ultimately about 65 to 70,000 copies. And then they, it went into a paperback as well. And it was an art, it was kind of an art book. And um, then the Japanese bought the rights too. They liked the ritual aspect of, of the absinthe drinking and Impressionist paintings. The Japanese were also, tycoons were buying up um, French abstract, uh, Impressionist paintings. So from there, the next Chronicle book said, well, what are you gonna do next? And I, I, I said, what do, you, what do you think? And I said, well, I was, he said, well, you're doing drawings and paintings of martinis. And the whole martini culture was coming back. So I wrote a book called The Martini, and we sold 175,000 copies. And so then they said, well, what do you want to do now? And I said, well, first, I, I, I think I better go to Betty Ford Center for about, uh, I went, I call, I'll talk to you when I get out. I, actually, I did not, but, uh, uh, but I wrote a book called The Cigar. So there, there, these, there was your icons of civilization, and, and I, um, I had fun with them. I enjoyed it, and it's almost anthropological in a way. And, um, and then I did... Um, uh, a book that looked really good, but it was the hardest to write. It was called The Blonde. The whole history of blonde women and the blondness, whatever that means. And, and, and I you know, I was going, well, most people aren't really blondes. They're brunettes that are dyeing their hair. And they go, don't, don't worry about that. Just do it. <laughs> and it, believe it or not, it was, it was a good looking book. It was fun, and, uh, but it, was, it didn't sell very well. And so I did other books, and I did a book on dogs in Paris, uh, picture books, and then cats in Paris, and, but with classic great photographs that were really terrific, you know. So in a sense, what I've been is always a co, you know, kind of, I feel like, the, I mean, the pictures drove the book. I was the co-pilot, and all I had to do was kind of, Keep us on course, here we go, turn left, okay, you know, and turn right. But um, they, they went in a couple, you know, the Japanese for some reason really liked all the books. So that's just kind of, you'll hear more later, but that's, that's where I started. All right, Marianne. Before I talk about me, when he did the blonde book, I was the editor of a hair color magazine, so I wrote it up in there, and it was great. It was fabulous. I got all these great pictures I could use. Gave me a whole page of edit, easy peasy, and everybody was happy. It was a win-win, so. Yeah, that, was prob that probably maybe sold an extra 100 copies of the book. <laughs> anyway, so I have been coming to this conference from, since 1994. I came here with my great tome, this novel I was writing that I call the X-Files, E-X-Files, and then somebody came out with a, well, what did they call that category where the chiclet started? Somebody came out with a book called the X-Files, and I came out with, so I changed the name to Committed. Then the woman that did Eat, Pray, Love, she came out with a book called Committed. I kept, my titles kept getting published before I could finish this book. <laughs> so it went through many permutations, and I would come here. I'm not the kind of person that can get up, at, I'll get up at six, and I'll write from six to seven every morning, then I'll go do my job. No, that doesn't work for me. I am very ADHD, so I have to have long stretches of time where I have no distractions and I can write. But I would come out here every year for the conference and I'd write like crazy, go to all the workshops, 
I go to the pirates even. I could actually stay up for the pirates in those days. That's how long ago that was. So, um, but anyway, so I'm doing this and I would read in the pirates. I mean, and the book kept changing and I didn't like it, whatever. And this years went by. I once came out and stayed at Monty's guest house and I wrote 100 pages in a week. I hold up up there at the pass. I was too afraid to go out at night that some cougar would come along or I'd run off the road, so I just wrote. But then I, I think I used 10 of those pages eventually. You know, I, I kept throwing the book out and trying it over again. So for many years here, people have heard me read in different workshops from that book that then finally about six years or so ago, I guess, I finally finished it. And I came up with this brain, well, I finished it, and, and then I didn't think it was any good, and, and I, I was disgusted. And then I came up with a great idea in 2010. Oh, I know what I can do with this book. What I should do is this, and I was going to change everything. It started at a different time, and it was a really great idea, and I had a great, it was just great, everything I thought of. But I realized, okay, then that means I have to write 200 more pages in the present time because of the way I was changing the structure. I thought, I don't think I can do that. I'm working full-time putting out a magazine. I had grandkids. I had kids. I just felt like I, that's too, I was too lazy, basically. It was like 2010 or 11. So I didn't do it. So then more years added up and nothing's going on. And then, I don't know, maybe five years ago or so, I was over at Monty's house and I said, I don't know, I'd book. He goes, you should just send it out. It's fine. I said, it isn't fine. I just didn't think it was good. And I said, something was missing. He goes, all right. Why don't you put it away? You've been working on this forever. He goes, why don't you think about some story you are compelled to write? And then write that. So I went back and I was thinking about it. And I had had, I have an inordinate amount of good friends who have lost children. One of them lost two of her three children. That almost killed her. And then she died of COVID. And it's like such a tragedy. And two of the, I dedicated my book to four children who were the children of three of my best friends, and they all died for various circumstances. Two of the people that I, their children are dedicated in this book, and I write about them in my acknowledgments, died before this book came out. One of pneumonia, my high school friend, and then a laureate of COVID, my other friend, my college roommate is still here. And I thought, you know, I don't know what it's like to lose a child. I have kids, and I can imagine it. All of parents could say, oh, it must be awful. But until it happens to you, you can't know. So I talked to them about it while they were still alive, what it was like and all this. And I decided I'm going to write a book. I'm going to come up with four friends that meet for some reason in this town. They all end up in this small hick town in northeast PA. And they become friends. And they all have their own stories. But two of them go through some unspeakable tragedy. And then I wanted to see what happened to them. And I figured, okay, one, she goes on a spiritual journey and literally goes across, ends up in California, goes through all kinds of changes to try to find out where is my daughter? Did she, she's still here? Somewhere? Is there heaven? She didn't believe it. She was an organized religion type. So she didn't know, but she goes through all this spiritual to finally find some, she finds peace at the end of this book. And it's Really great. It has to do with physics, if you can believe that. Einstein and black holes and every other thing. The other person becomes a painter. Something she wanted to do since she was a child. She, her friend convinces her to go to art school. She's older. And she, she starts painting mothers and children. That's how she sublimates her grief and works through it. And her friend had given her a book by the painter Mary Cassatt. She was an American. She grew up in Pittsburgh, actually. Lived in France her whole life, buried there. So Nina that's, that's what she's doing. And then she, there's a chapter in the book, she will go to Paris to find Mary Cassatt's house, see her grave, and think, can I really paint? And there's two other characters in this book, too. One, Charlotte has a secret she's never told anyone, and she's like Miss Perfect, and nobody can ever imagine that she had this secret. And the other one is very rabid Catholic, devout Catholic, very, she always, always was, but her husband leaves her, and she goes through a lot of stuff, and she has an arc. All of these women have an arc so that they change by the end, but they come together, and they find this kind of resolution. It's, I've had people read this that said, you tied everything up that I knew what, I felt like I knew these people, and then I knew where they were going. And somebody said, yeah, I read that book, Gone Girl, and I threw it across the room when I finished it, because the ending was so ridiculous. It was like, what? 
If we've all seen movies like that. Haven't you seen art films where you go, wait a minute, what happened? Who did, wait, were they really dead or what? And you can't figure it out. It's like, that's really horrible. Don't hide what you're writing about. Tell me as a reader what I'm supposed to be thinking. So anyway, but I could, I tried to get an agent. I wrote this book. I just spent several years, a couple of years, writing, writing, writing. And last night, our speaker, Mary, said she had been a magazine editor for years, and that helped her. She was used to deadlines, and I was, too, 30 years of monthly deadlines. And I knew how to do that. I, this was my job for two years. I, I wasn't working anymore. I did some freelance, but I had the time. And I wrote this book, and these characters became so real that they did things that I didn't expect them to do. I never thought that would happen to me, but whoa, it really did, and it was kind of amazing. So. I couldn't get an agent. I tried. I sent. It, I spent a year or something trying to get somebody. I kept getting rejected. No, we're not in. Yeah, whatever. And you know what? I've, I've met a woman. I saw a woman. She published a book. She was on the Ethel's Circle. It's a Facebook group for women over 55. They are my target audience, and I, they have 30,000 members now. I got a thousand two. I've never had 1.2 likes on any Facebook page or comment ever, but that one I did when I put my book on there. And so I just, I didn't know what to do with it, but I saw a book on that site. And, and it's, it was by this woman, it was, it was called The Milliner of Main Street, right? To her, I said, how'd you get published? Because she was older. Oh, forget it. I was in magazines for 30 years. I write, I'm a great writer. I couldn't get an agent to talk to me because of my age. Nobody wants to read this book. She goes, so she goes, I did, I used, she told me the publisher she had. She said, it was a hybrid publisher. I said, I don't even know what that is. This was a couple of years ago. She said, well, I'll tell you. So then I started reaching. She goes, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you, how old are you? And I told her. And she said, OK, you're going to ask yourself this. Do you want to die with this book on your computer as a Word document? Or do you want to see it in print? And I said, I want to see it in print. And I will tell you, I'm a really good writer. And for many years, I felt like if I didn't get published by Knopf or you know HarperCollins or something, then I was a failure. That is BS, and I don't believe it anymore, and you don't need an agent, and you can do it yourself. I did it. My former art director, my hair color magazine, found this cover for me for nothing. She laid it out. I have a publisher here who's going to be speaking tomorrow on the hybrid publishing, Luminar Press. I love them. I've had a great experience. And you know what? The best part is I don't, none of us are going to get rich. The regular publishers, they take half of anything anywhere, most everything. But this was my, I did this. And so to be my age after all these years and say, I didn't have to get some 30-year-old agent in New York trying to sell my book and say, well, I can get you a deal there for that. I did it. I made it happen. And I put it together. And I am proud of what I did. It's a good book. It deserved to be published by Knopf. But it wasn't. So I don't care. Anyway, <laughs> whatever. That's my story. Yeah. Max, uh, one of the stories in my secret place is the stuff of jazz legend. It's the imagining of an unreleased uh, recording session with Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk, and why it's never shared with the world. Another features a song you mentioned earlier, the songwriter for a rock band who's about to explode on the yacht rock uh, scene, and then he misses his chance at love for a life, you know, a swing at greatness. Uh, your anti-hero from the crime novel Santa Fe Psychosis is unable to stop falling into traps set by an ex. Uh, your fiction and short story, journal form, and novel all seems to include these people, as you mentioned, on, on the edges of the mainstream, whether that's due to their own shortcomings, past trauma, or simply the degradation of our society. All that and the occasional missed opportunity. My question is, who hurt you? <laughs> Did you always know, have you always found this theme in your writing, and at this age, have you finally sort of honed in on what you write? Um. That's a complicated question. Fair, fair. Do I have to pay you for this therapy? Session? I mean, no. <laughs> um, it's a group therapy. It's group therapy. I, I, my dad was a book publisher for 55 years, um, so, and he was a control freak. And so I grew up as a rebel. The last thing I wanted to do was be in book publishing. I <laughs> loved reading, but I did not want to be an editor. So um, I think I, my first things I read were like Alfred Hitchcock collections of murder and mystery, which I loved, and Ray Bradbury collections, and uh, page 28 in The Godfather. Um, and, um, and then I moved on to Kurt Vonnegut, and I, I do, I like fiction that's weirder and surreal and has edges to it, and questions things. I don't like norm 
whatever normal fiction is, I, that's not what I read. So, um, what was your question again? No, I, was, <laughs> I just wanted to. Who am I? I have no idea. No, you, you've answered it. it um, uh, um, you, so, you found your voice through, through these misfits. Yeah, I wrote some novels. Uh, that in, in the late 90s, I had a big time agent who couldn't sell my first two books, so I stopped writing for a while. And then I found my way back to short story writing, which was sort of full circle because that's what I really started reading. And I realized, you know, everyone tells you short stories will never sell, but people also say first novels never sell. They say memoirs don't sell. I'm not sure what sells at this point, <laughs> but um, I enjoy writing both novels and short stories, but um, short stories seem to work right now for me. So that's why this collection all came together. All right. Uh, Diana, in An Imaginary Affair, uh, it captures so many moments, and it's easy to see how uh, memoirist and poet come together. Um, in your poem, Honoring Our Past, you write, Tangled in one another, let's rejoice on this one day in life's flash, and remember there's no turning back. Um, obviously, it is a, a, a tribute to a Neruda as well, but um, this, this merge of poetry and memoir, uh, is there a reason, I mean, you've sort of mentioned it before, but how do you focus in on these, these precious moments, these particular moments when you make your art? Mm, great question. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Sweet, okay. It's like Ernie teaches humor, and he talks about the, uh, you know, focusing on the uh, uh, finding funny in the, no in the everyday. So what I try to do is find small moments that are meaningful, and I kind of develop that into, uh, into a poem. Uh, I had a disagreement or a discussion with a friend who is a fiction writer, and we were deciding whether whether poetry is fiction or nonfiction. And he kept saying, oh, no, it's all fiction. I'm like, no, it's nonfiction. We came to the agreement that it was both. So I think that it's uh, basically emerging. What was your question? <laughs> if you realized you had a trend in your work. Oh, a trend. Uh, well, I do... Uh, yes, I do take... I, I, I suppose you can say that my... Um, my poetry, my, my first poetry book, one of my poetry books was called Dear Anna East, uh, My Life in Poems for You, and it was all about, it was a memoir basically in poems. And when I teach memoir writing, I talk about the different structures of memoir. Sometimes it could be essays put together, sometimes it's a story, uh, you know, in the novel form where there's a beginning, middle, and end with an arc. Um, but it also, it, it, I just, I do take from every day. Um, from my experiences, from the experiences of people I know. And I've been a journal writer, you know, for many, many decades, and I always keep a journal in my pocket because you never know when ideas come to you. So oftentimes I'll have an image. Poetry starts with an image or a feeling or uh, something that you're feeling. Something has to be a feeling because poetry is very emotional. So I'll usually jot emotions or feelings or images in my journal, and if I don't have time, to write a poem at that moment, then I will get back to it later. Uh, so yeah, I do look in the everyday for, for answers. Um, Great. Does that work? Yeah. Uh, Jim, you touched on it earlier, um, that obviously that, that emotional bond at the beginning of To Free a Slave is, is, is a moral bond right away. That is, the two children are raised, and very obviously um, it is a, is a a point that everyone who looks in, inward can't dispute, and that they find that that truth um, that basically, you know, slavery and racism make no sense, um, despite the world around them. Um, since you sort of kind of uh, gone in on this, but uh, why did you want to see this book in the world in particular? Why do what? Why did you want to see this book in the world in particular? What did you say? Why did you write this book, and why? Why did you, you bring it into the world? Okay, I wrote the book because I had a fantasy since I was a child. And I played with that fantasy off and on. It would go away for years, and it would come back. And what do I do if... And so the what if kind of haunted me. And when I retired and had more time, I decided I'd quit taking out kidneys for cancer and write a book. <laughs> um, and then blessed your memoir, um, Similar. Uh, why did why did you want? Because uh, you don't have it here, but do you, uh, I wanted tell us to about put blessing? together something for my children, my grandchildren, and my great grandchildren to know what the patriarch went through. And as I told you earlier, I've had 
many chances to die, and I've missed them. <laughs> and so that's in there. And I've been blessed all my life. And so I wrote about being blessed. Fantastic. Um, Barnaby, you, you, you literally drew attention to something. I, your work uh, draws attention to some, a term I'd even never even thought of, which is the monograph, which is the singular, the definition of which is what, a singular topic uh, book. Yes, and, and typically it's Mike, get that mic. Yes. Associated with, uh, we talk about artists' monographs. So instead of doing a general book called The Impressionists, you would do a monograph on Manet, for example, or even specifically on Manet's etchings, perhaps, you know, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, In this case, um, especially with this, this current book, yeah. um, did you approach... Uh, Jacques Villiglay, or did you approach the publisher first? How, do, you, do you pitch it as a concept first? Well, it, I, I was very fortunate. Um, there's a great art dealer in San Francisco who, named Martin Mueller, who's actually Swiss, French, and he shows a lot of uh, French artists and all kinds of people. I mean, from David Hogney to John Register, who I wrote a book about as well, who was a painter in L.A., um, painted some could have been Edward Hopper's son, for example, in, in a sense, um, style-wise. So um, we were over in Paris. Martin's a great buddy and a great friend. And um, we were over there with um, Jacques Villiglay. And I'd actually bought a couple of his works, smaller works, early on um, when he, he showed in San Francisco. And it just occurred to me there was no book in English on him. And to be honest, there, were, there was a huge catalog that the Pompidou Center had done on him in 08, but I found it very uh, dry and um, theoretical, and it was by four different art historians, you know, with PhDs, et cetera, and, um, you know, and I, I only got through third grade, and, uh, you, know, I mean, you know, anyway, I'm kidding, but, uh, <laughs> but I didn't have a graduate degree, and um, I, I saw just this huge missing opportunity um, sometimes the French writers take themselves too seriously. And so I talked to Jacques, and I thought I was going to do a shorter book, to be honest, a smaller book. And it, he was like the, the skeleton key into this whole world that I realized everybody else was dead or dying. And unfortunately, I, I, so I met him in like 2003, and I took him around San Francisco because I was the only person spoke French. He doesn't speak any English. And um, so we, we kind of bonded by just driving around. And it was kind of like the odd, you know, the odd couple in a way. But um, we, um, he, he liked the idea. And so I went over and literally walked around with him for about, in Paris, every day we'd go on a walk somewhere in Paris. And he'd show me, yeah, I took that poster in 1959, that place. They've changed that building quite a bit. You know that kind of thing, and um, he, uh, he he was just was it was a, he was a marvelous. The book is really about his adventures in Paris, so it really is about the streets of Paris, and he, that was his atelier. He he didn't all the pictures were made in the street, and he is in a sense the the grandfather of Banksy and a lot of the other um, um, even Basquiat and. Um, Keith Haring and people like that, the street artists, you know. And um, so I found it interesting and I thought it was an opportunity to do something very different that no one had really done. And um, I think that they'll probably end up, it'll probably go into a French edition. Um, but the French get a little, they get a little touchy, kind of, oh, maybe, il est américain, it's impossible to comprendre la France. I mean, il faut fumer de, de comprendre la France. All right, now you're just offending you know. people. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, you, sir, you, sir. Oh, you're quite an attractive older gentleman, I would say. Yes. I'm not saying anything. No, I'm not. No, oh, I've lost my accent. So then you, so uh, then you pitched the book to someone. Well, it was this weird kind of mix of his art dealer, Inkshares.com, which is actually a 
crowd um, a reader funded company that I'm actually an in investor in. And I always thought in business or anything else that the doctor must take his own medicine. And so uh, I signed that we did this kind of peculiar uh, hybrid um, and um, uh, with InkShares, which normally does books, um, novels, and um, the, the head of, of, of InkShares is a guy named Adam Gomelin, who's about 36, and he was a former contract lawyer in, um, in Hollywood for two years and just loves books. And so he and a couple other people started this company. And um, uh, they, uh, I know they've had at least 10 or 12, sold at least 10 or 12, um, you know, movie rights to, to uh, on their, their titles. Um, and so this was, this is an outlier. This was not, but they are all, they're distributed by Ingram, which is the largest book distributor in the world. So I figured, okay, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And um, so it was kind of a group effort. That's how it came about. All right. Um, yeah. Do we have any questions for, for everybody? Oh, you, you, you sir. Uh, I have a question for Barnaby. Uh, yes. You said you eventually sold no, it was not. And because they weren't, they were kind of a fledgling, in 82, they were still publishing just a lot of like San Francisco Chronicle columnists. And, um, and I, I was a sort of a foreign correspondent for them. And, on a freelance basis in Paris. And um, Nyan McAvoy, who was sort of the heir to the Chronicle, the large, he owned a third, he inherited from his mother a third of the Chronicle. He, he got, he loved books and he loved poetry. Um, and um, he was a childhood friend and he, um, they were trying to, suddenly Chronicle was, they were gonna up their game instead of just publishing local kind of travel guides and things like that. And so they, they've done some interesting things over the years. Yeah, and um, so um, he took a flyer on it, and I'm glad he did, and we, I think it, it worked out really well for everybody, and um, we then went on and did more books, um, but, um, and they, they were growing too, but it was really, I think any writer could understand this, you know, my first book, uh, my mother just died, um, this was like 80, I guess it was 89, 88, 89, and um, not my stepmother, Mary, who many of you know, but my mother, Dale. And um, and I, I was, you know, pretty sad. And I, the book had come out, though, with a rave review and in the New York Times. And then I went down to the office to go see them. And the elevator doors opened like this. And they had taped the review right in the elevator. So I walked in like this. And it was the first book that they had ever had reviewed in the New York Times. And they've gone on to many successes. I mean, oh, I mean, really, some interesting stuff and all over the place. Um, but um, I still have all those rejection letters from those people. And it's kind of like, hello. Uh, you know, not, not to be vindictive or anything. And, yeah. Uh, do we have another? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vindictive yeah. <laughs> sounds so much better in French. Uh, do we have uh, any more questions? Oh, yes, you over here. Uh, the question is, uh, did you go to agents? Uh, it sounds like you all met almost directly to publishers in this case. Uh, did you go to agents, and if so, why not? Uh, I started out with two agents in New York. Uh, they were fantastic. I like they loved my work with for Regina's Closet, uh, but they had couldn't sell it to the top six uh, publishers in New York, so they didn't want to go to smaller publishers. So I had to go to a smaller publisher because a lot of them do like the big publishers. <clears throat> the second agent, um, uh, I was one of <clears throat> excuse me one of thousands, and I realized that uh, I was lost in the shuffle. So I just decided to. Uh, 
uh, get Publishers Weekly and uh, Writer's Digest. This was back in the early 2000s and just flip through it. Also go to the bookstore and find out what books are similar to yours and see what publishers publish those kinds of books. Yeah. We are, yeah, like I say, we are nearing time. Oh, okay. Um, I've, I've used agents for novels, but if you can find agents who want short story collections, please tell me who they are. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's a short story. I don't have an agent. <laughs> I have two daughters. <laughs> better, probably better. No offense to any agent. I realize that no agent would want a 92-year-old author. <laughs> so... I decided to publish it myself and went with Kindle Direct. And my older daughter did all the negotiations to get through the briar patch. And my younger daughter created my website and did the beautiful book, No Agent. Um, well, it is, we are uh, actually up, up against time. Um, first and foremost, these authors will all be down below in the fireside room and will be signing books that you can buy right there in the bookstore. So obviously, please do that if you have the means and the time, and they will be glad to sign them for you. If you don't, but you want to read them later, obviously ask them if they have a mailing list or something that they can be where you can be notified how to get them. Uh, ask your library for the, their books. If they don't have them, they can request them. And of course, if you read one of their books, please, please, please leave a positive review. Uh, negative reviews are not helpful for anyone anywhere. So unless they are Hitler, do not give them anything <laughs> less than four stars. All right, how about a round of applause for our five genres and more?